Hello and welcome to The Aftermath. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm hoping to get this new year, this new advent started on a good note and dive into some scripture. If you've listened to the preview episode, you'll know that this is a podcast that's basically just one guy walking through the scripture in an interesting way and trying to learn a little bit more about it and just talking about it as I do. This is not some kind of authoritative textual analysis or exegesis. Uh, I'm not an expert by any stretch. Uh, I'm just really interested in what the scriptures have to say, and I'm trying to figure out how to better understand them so as to get a better relationship with the Lord and see how I can improve my personal and spiritual life by doing so. So as you saw from the title of the episode, we're starting right where the new year begins. Uh, This last Sunday, uh, November 28th, 2021, was the first Sunday of Advent in year C. Uh, The church celebrates this by having the first Mass of the year where the priest wears purple and we start lighting candles and start discussing the saints and we start discussing the way that we are called to be saints and prepare the way of the Lord. So, as we'll do in all the episodes going forward, we'll go ahead and start with the scriptures, and I invite you now to press pause and uh, pray to the Lord that your heart can be opened and your mind can be opened so that your spirit can be deepened as you explore the scriptures with me. So, the first reading is Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and Judah. In those days, in that time, I will raise up for David a just shoot. He shall do what is right and just in the land. In those days, Judah shall be safe, and Jerusalem shall dwell secure. This is what they shall call her, the Lord our justice. The second reading is from the first letter of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses, verse 12, through chapter 4, verse 2. Brothers and sisters, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we have for you, so as to strengthen your hearts, to be blameless in holiness before God our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his holy ones. Amen. Finally, brothers and sisters, we earnestly ask and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you should conduct yourselves to please God, and as you are conducting yourselves, you do so even more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. The Gospel is from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28, 34 through 36. Jesus said to his disciples, There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on earth nations will be in dismay, perplexed by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will die of fright in anticipation of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these signs begin to happen, stand erect and raise your heads, because your redemption is at hand. Beware that your hearts do not become drowsy from carousing and drunkenness in the anxieties of daily life, and that day catch you by surprise like a trap. For that day will assault everyone who lives on the face of the earth. Be vigilant at all times. 
and pray that you have the strength to escape the tribulations that are imminent and to stand before the Son of Man. So the first Sunday of Advent always prepares the faithful for the coming of the Lord. Uh, That's an event of which we know neither the day nor the hour. Of course, we do know the first coming of the Lord. That happened when Jesus was born on the Nativity. Uh, But it actually starts the season by preparing us for the second coming. It kind of tells us the end right at the beginning, and it's running in exactly a parallel track with the first coming of the Lord that's described in the Gospels. Uh, So every liturgical year, uh, A, B, and C, uh, they present the message with a slightly different focus. So in year C, which is this year, uh, we start with Luke's Gospel. uh, And in this passage, God, through Luke's words, tells us two things. Uh, He tells us the proper attitude that believers should have in light of the good news, and he tells us the importance of prayer and vigilance as a way of life. Uh, So, of course, these things are intimately related with one another. So just some uh, initial thoughts here after reading it. Uh, This is a story that has an obvious beginning and an obvious ending, uh, although we don't know when the ending is going to occur. And as I said, they're pretty much exactly uh, in parallel. Uh, One of the more remarkable things about today's readings uh, to me is the way that time plays into like the composition of the three readings together. So specifically, there's the liter- literal and liturgical senses of beginning and end that are intimately linked and represented in both the words of Scripture and in their placement in our calendar in relation to one another today. Uh, so St. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians marks the probable beginning of Christian literature, uh, just historically speaking. So this was the first thing that St. Paul uh, would have written during his missionary work. Uh, and then within the text selected for today, we see St. Paul explain to the Thessalonians that Christian charity has its beginnings in confraternity and goodwill toward others. So that's, that's the basis of the entire concept of Christian charity. Uh, but the important thing is that the end of that charity, the goal of it, is the perfection of love through Jesus Christ. So we see written out how we're to start a life of Christian living, and we see it at the beginning of the liturgical year right in parallel with the Gentiles of Thessalonica who would find themselves, who would themselves have been kind of starting their own path to discipleship in Christ brand new. Um, so the timing of this reading at the beginning of the liturgical year, I think is pretty meaningful. Uh, the first account of Christian literature, uh, this, this first account of it is it, it's in stark juxtaposition with the passage from Luke's gospel, uh, which features the very end of Jesus's ministry on his journey to Jerusalem. So we hear Jesus' last words to his disciples before he's betrayed and the passion begins. Uh, That's the culmination of his life on earth. That's what he was sent here to do. So we're at the end of the story, even though we just heard the beginnings, even though we just read the first thing that St. Paul wrote to the faithful in Thessalonica, we're also seeing the very end of the story in this passage from Luke. And I think that juxtaposition is really meaningful. And we see the, the beginnings and the perfection of love through Christ, exactly as described by St. Paul. You know, the whole point of the beginning is to get to the end. And then as for the gospel, you know, the, the, the cosmic disasters that portend the second coming of the Son of Man, it, these are really powerful, intense images. Uh, you might even call them frightening. Uh, they're also largely symbolic. You know, earthquakes, floods, natural disasters, uh, all those things are horrifyingly powerful uh, and they can humble even the mightiest among us in comparison. You know, they're, they're a force of nature against 
just human nature. And there, there's no comparison. Uh, but I, I don't think Jesus is instructing his disciples about how to like understand meteorology or plate tectonics or something. He's telling them that when the Son of Man comes again, it's not going to be business as usual for them. Uh, and, and, and we as readers today should understand that as well. And when, when the second coming happens, it's not going to be business as usual. And we're not going to be left with the difficult task of piecing through minute data to try to figure out, well, is this really the second coming? I, I think Jesus is making it pretty clear that we're going to know when the time has finally come. There, there's not going to be a return to the way of living life that we're familiar with. You know, things will permanently and fundamentally change. And we will forcibly be made low by the phenomenal cosmic power accompanying the Son of Man and his return. You know, we will be laid bare. We'll be vulnerable. And that's going to happen whether we're ready for it or not. So now I want to take a little bit deeper dive into each of the readings. And we'll just go in sequential order here. Starting with the first reading, which, uh, as I said, is from Jeremiah chapter 33. So in, uh, in preparing for this discussion today, I, I looked through a variety of resources. You know, I've got a number of commentaries here and, and some excellent study Bibles that have some really good, uh, good commentary in themselves and good references. Uh, I've also got a number of you know, just theological texts that uh, I'm you know, fortunate to have to be able to draw you know, kind of some wisdom uh, and, and inspiration from. Uh, so those are the materials that I'm using to, to look at each of these, these readings. And this selection from Jeremiah uh, comes from a selection of uh, additions to uh, what's known as the Book of Consolation. So specifically, this passage that we read today uh, forms the first half of a messianic anthology. And that anthology is set within this broader narrative in the book uh, of the restoration of Israel, and more locally, uh, the restoration of Judah, specifically. Uh, so the theme in this passage, and, and you know, more broadly in this section, but especially in the, in the verses that we hear today, uh, is the Messiah. We're, we're asking the question, what will he be like? You know, what will be the duties and responsibilities of the Messiah? What does it mean for God's people on earth to understand that Messiah? Uh, so it, interestingly, uh, the passage itself that we read today uh, is actually not written by Jeremiah. Uh, it appears to be an insertion uh, and that's according to biblical scholars. You know, that, that's not that's not me just taking a look at the English and seeing how it sounds. Uh, it's probably the work of a later redactor who transformed a small collection of Jeremiah's messianic oracles. Uh, the message is a couplet, and it's included to kind of glorify Jerusalem. So in, in this case, the name Jerusalem is infused with messianic meaning. So first, astute readers of Jeremiah will note that this is not the first occurrence of this particular couplet in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, the same promise in which God says he's going to bring forth an upright branch for David, that also occurs in chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Uh, but it actually goes even deeper than that. So in this case, the word branch, uh, that, that term, that's later going to become a proper noun, and it's actually going to be a messianic title. Uh, so it's a specific reference to a specific person and not just kind of a symbolic reference to what, what the Lord is going to provide for the people of Israel. Uh, so here's another interesting point. If you happen to be looking for the Greek term for, for the word branch used in this case to determine whether it's like a proper noun or if it's some other kind of construction, uh, you're actually going to have a bit of trouble. So a portion of chapter 33 
spanning verses 14 through 26 don't exist in the Septuagint. And of course, the Septuagint is the, the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament. Um, instead, those verses, you know, 14 through 16, uh, coming out of chapter 33, uh, they were probably added later uh, after the Septuagint was, was kind of finalized. Uh, so the text has been corroborated with a variety of, uh, of, of original sources, like fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. Uh, I'm not sure why they never made it into uh, the Septuagint manuscripts. I wasn't able to get an answer for that. So if you happen to be listening and you know the answer for how these verses got uh, included in the, in the text of Jeremiah without being in the Septuagint, uh, feel free to uh, let me know in the comments or uh, feel free to reach out about that. But nonetheless, the concept of a proper name that, that concept has importance in prophetic literature. So name not only describes and defines the nature of the being that bears it, a name amounts to nothing less than destiny. It's the fulfillment of ontological purpose. So in light of the Messianic name Jerusalem here, this prophecy describes the way the Messianic community will be administered when all is as it should be. If things are running rightly, this is what it's going to look like. And we see a manifestation of this set up uh, actually elsewhere in Scripture in, in Zechariah chapter 4, uh, and then in chapter 6, verse 13, uh, the function of the Messiah is going to be essentially twofold. The Messiah will be the king, and the Messiah will be the priest. He'll be the intercessor with the Lord uh, on behalf of his people. You know, he's kind of the bridge that links this, this mortal people with, uh, with the Lord God. Uh, so obviously, the central role uh, is, the Messiah has the central role in, in this community. The concept of the messianic name of Jerusalem uh, appears elsewhere in the major prophets too. Uh, the very last verse of the book of the prophet Ezekiel, uh, so chapter 48, verse 35, uh, it says the name of the future city must be Yahweh is there. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, the term used is Yahweh Sham, which is probably meant to be evocative or suggestive of the name Jerusalem, Yahweh Sham, Jerusalem. You know, just kind of, there's that auditory similarity there. Uh, but whether it is or isn't, uh, that name, the, the literal translation of the name Yahweh is there, uh, it's the perfect summary of Ezekiel's religious and liturgical activities. Uh, then in Isaiah, in chapter 1, verse 26b, the second half of it there, uh, the Lord says the city will be called Faithful City, City of Saving Justice. Here, God changes the name and thus changes the vocation of Jerusalem. Like, for example, when he changed Abram's name to Abraham in Genesis, or when he would later change Saul's name to Paul, and by changing the name of the thing, he's not only redesignating it, he's redefining its purpose and its, its function, its kind of ontology you know, as, a, as an entity. And he's changing the vocation of Jerusalem to a people that's called to participate in God's justice and holiness. It's it's a direct involvement of the people who comprise Jerusalem. So the in the context of the Mass, the first reading for the Mass goes beyond the clear connection between promise and fulfillment. You, know, you have a promise, gets fulfilled later on. Okay, that's, that's clear. The replacement of the name of Israel with the name Jerusalem shows the depth of God's call to his people to be unified with him in holiness and justice. This is an existential difference in this renaming. And it characterizes the fulfillment of the promise in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus will be both king and priest to the pilgrim church on earth. Uh, and you know, I, I mentioned the timing of the liturgical calendar earlier on. 
and you know, I, I think we see another parallel here. You know, the Messiah is going to be the king, and he's going to be the priest. And you know, obviously, Christ as the priest is is persistent you know, symbolically throughout the New Testament. Uh, but interestingly, the last Sunday before the start of the new year on on the following Sunday, so this year it would have been November twenty first, twenty twenty one. The feast day is the feast of Christ, King of the Universe. You know, the the last thing we talked about before starting a new year, before getting to the next the next step, is showing Christ the King, and now we're talking about Christ as priest uh, to the Pilgrim Church on Earth. I, I I think that's just that's just spectacular, and you know, with the with the centuries and centuries of thought that went into the selection of Scripture and the designation of feast days and the timing of the calendar, that that, that can't be a coincidence. Uh, the, the entire liturgical year begins with a call to order for the most important guiding principle in the faith, that God will make us one with him through the person of Jesus Christ. And I just think that's spectacular. So now we'll go ahead and take a look at the second reading, uh, which of course is uh, from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapters 3 and 4. Uh, so the passage that we read today comes from St. Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. The letter is very short. Uh, there are only 89 verses in this entire thing. Uh, but it's a, it's a really powerful reminder to us today what a healthy, functioning church looks like. You know, what, when, when all is as it should be, what does, the, what does the Christian church on earth really look like? Uh, or, or at least what are the beginnings of the Christian church look like? Uh, one of the names that, or one, sorry, one of the themes that jumps out from this reading is continual improvement. Um, you know, th- th- this isn't some treatise on the power of you know believing in yourself or nose to the grindstone work addiction or like perfectionism. Uh, I think instead it's an appeal to the children of God to continue to live in accordance with God's will. You know, faith in Christ isn't something to be acquired one time and then left on the shelf like a trophy. It's not an achievement. A person has to continually exercise it and work to improve the way that the way that's done is through active love of others. And I really think the key word here is is active. It has to be something that's that's done over and over and not something that's just checked off on a list. Uh, but of course, even with radical, personal improvement or giving over of the self as verse or as chapter three, verse 12 points out, Christ alone is the source of growth in love. It's not a matter of of having the strength of character. It's opening your heart and asking the Lord to give you the strength of character. It doesn't come from the self. It comes from Jesus Christ. So the next verse following three twelve. Uh, has a couple possible interpretations. So it, it could be that when St. Paul refers to all the holy ones, uh, it could be that he's making a reference to the angels. Uh, and he might even have the Old Testament in mind here, specifically Zechariah uh, chapter 14, verse 5. Uh, alternatively, it's possible that he's holding the entire parousia in his mind at one moment, you know, truly encapsulating uh, the apocalyptic style. You know, he's got the entire end of creation uh, in his mind when he's talking about all the holy ones. Uh, But in any case, in in this reading, we see two sides of a coin. On the one side, we're called to live well in holiness, 
We're called to live lives of Christian virtue so that we can be blameless before God. Uh, On the other, we're watching for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who will come in glory with all his holy ones. So we see what the beginning has to look like so that we can arrive at the end. Uh, And the only only pathway to the end uh, is the person of Jesus. It's not going to be it's not self-motivated. It's not something that we can draw out of ourselves. Uh, it's something that we have to be willing to, we have to be vulnerable enough to let Christ give to us and, and put into us uh, so that we can uh, be made one with him. This reading from Luke is about as intense as it gets. Uh, it, it's it's kind of a curious and maybe even difficult or challenging way to start the liturgical year. Uh, it's certainly a harrowing message to frame the season of Advent where we're supposed to be preparing the way for like this little baby to come into the world. Uh, Even before we get to the story, we can note the literary placement of this passage in Luke's gospel. Uh, So the instruction to stay awake and remain vigilant in prayer, that's the last thing Jesus says before his passion starts with Judas's betrayal at the Last Supper. We quite literally begin the liturgical year with that, with that, that clear-eyed focus on the very end of the story that God has written, in which we know Jesus will be killed. And we also know that Jesus will rise again. Uh, so we're, we're, we're staring directly at the end of the story from the very beginning, and we know what it's going to be. Uh, but we as listeners, we as readers now, we have no idea how the story is going to unfold between now and then for us. Uh, so, so the question that we're faced with in the present day is, you know, how are we supposed to respond to this information? What's the proper reaction uh, from, from the church on earth? Um, this reading comes from the portion of St. Luke's Gospel that recounts Jesus' teaching in Jerusalem. So Jesus is destruct- instructing his disciples uh, in the way of preparedness for the Lord, you know, kind of in the way that St. Paul would have been to the Thessalonians to the Thessalonians, uh, to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, this passage is found uh, in Mark. Uh, there's, there's a parallel in chapter 13, verses 24 through 27. Uh, and there's also a parallel in Matthew, uh, chapter 24, verses 29 and 31. So th- that happens a lot in, in the, the, the three so-called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, they have some common sources a lot of times, and so there will be a lot of passages that sound really similar, or in some cases even word-for-word uh, repeats. Of course, John is kind of off by himself, so I don't think there's a, a similar passage there. Uh, but there is one in Mark and Matthew for, for this particular teaching. Uh, and Jesus' words here are actually a callback to an earlier moment in his preaching, uh, seen in verse 11. Uh, so at this point in Jesus' preaching, it's clear that the details of the events, the, the physical, temporal characteristics of the earthquakes and the floods, that's not the key information. They're not associated with the fall of Jerusalem uh, or with any other like, contemporaneous event. Instead, the important point here is that faith in eschatological victory, that, that faith gives sustenance and support to suffering, uh, persecuted Christians in every age. That's, that's a really important thing for us to take away here, I think. So then Jesus' mention of signs in the sky, in the sun and the moon and the stars, and his mention of agony among nations, uh, men fainting with terror. These are all familiar eschatological signs for an audience that would have been well-versed in the prophets. Amos, Micah, Jeremiah in particular, uh, Isaiah 
they all speak about these signs that Jesus mentions here uh, in connection with, with the eschaton, with the end of times. Uh, one of the cool things about Luke is uh, he uses these psychological terms to characterize the situation and really bring these huge universal scale cosmological events uh, home to bear. Uh, you know, nations are in agony. They're, they're bewildered. Whole nations are bewildered. Men faint with terror. You know, th- these details are classic Luke, uh, and they really send, lend a sense of immediacy to what otherwise would be a pretty overwhelming, far too grand a scale, almost like eldritch horror type uh, description of destruction and disaster that's just, just beyond reckoning. Another of Luke's classic characteristics is also on full display in this passage. Uh, whereas St. Matthew frequently quotes the Old Testament, Luke is writing primarily for a Gentile audience. Uh, and he kind of, he, he's kind of sparse with the Hebraic references and vocabulary uh, as often as he possibly can be. For, for Luke, Jesus himself is the prophet. And so there's, there's another role for him. In that, and that's kind of infused throughout Luke's gospel. Luke uses the title of prophet for Jesus much more often than Mark. Uh, and he especially likens Jesus to Elijah, uh, who, of course, the, was the prophet who was sent to prophesy to the Gentiles. Um, but Luke puts a little twist on it. In his gospel, Jesus never actually preaches to the Gentiles, which I think is really interesting. So he's, he's kind of doing a thing that Jesus never does in the narrative. Uh, instead, this comparison with Elijah comes to the fore when we couple Luke's gospel with the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which, of course, Luke also wrote. Uh, in parallel, Jesus' ministry to the Jews mirrors the ministry of the Christian church in, in the Acts of the Apostles, in the book of Acts. Uh, indeed, Luke sees the fulfillment of Jesus' prophetic ministry in the church itself. So suddenly, Paul's encouragement to continue living well in preparation for God's promises, that seems all the more meaningful. And it seems to give, even today, uh, we as readers feel a sense of responsibility uh, for carrying on Jesus' prophetic ministry just by doing the act of reading Luke's gospel where Jesus is uh, it, it, Jesus has the role of prophet. And, and that gets extended out in the book of Acts. And, and it's kind of the, the fulfillment of what the church is supposed to look like. When all is when all is going well, um, just on a on a quick personal note here, I really enjoy Luke's gospel, even if it isn't necessarily you know, my favorite. I, I used to talk with folks in college uh, about this stuff every now and then, and I and a wise friend of mine would say, "Well, you know, I, th- I think you can you can learn a lot about a person and a lot about yourself by what what that person's or what your favorite gospel is." And, I, I don't know if Luke is my favorite, but I do really enjoy it. Uh, I, I read one commentator put it, uh, Luke's gospel ushers the New Testament into the world of literary excellence. Uh, he moves with masterful control and delicate smoothness from the classical style of the prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, to the strongly Hebraic tone of the infancy narrative in verses 5 through chapter 252 to the heavily septuagintal pattern of the rest of the gospel. In Acts, he reverts to a classical style. Uh, just the, the, the literary prowess of, uh, of St. Luke is just astonishing. And I, I think the way he's able to take these incredibly powerful themes uh, and make them immediate to you know, an, an audience mostly of Gentiles uh, is pretty remarkable. Uh, and 
know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the church selected this particular passage at this exact time and place, and in, in it juxtaposed against you know, at the end of the year where we saw the feast of Christ, King of the Universe. I mean, the the, the timing here, the literary quality of the passages themselves, you know, the the clear the clear symbols, but also the, the deeper meanings and, and what we're supposed to take away from them as, as Christians and how we live our lives. Um, I think this is just a, a spectacular literary treat, um, e- even beyond being a, a, a clear set of moral instructions and, and a reminder uh, to us of, of who we are and where, where we get our personhood from. So just some concluding thoughts on everything that we've discussed here so far in these readings. Um, so, as, uh, as you might expect, uh, C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite authors, uh, you know, he wrote about the theme of readiness that, that we can see in today's readings. So in his essay, The World's Last Night, Lewis discusses the importance of the parousia, the, the second coming, and he uses familiar literature to explain. So Lewis describes this throwaway character from Shakespeare's King Lear, uh, whose presence in the play is so short and so apparently insignificant that he doesn't even have a name. Uh, he is known to the audience only as Servant One, uh, and his entire role in the play is in Act 3, Scene 7, uh, during the blinding of Gloucester. Um, so, sorry for the spoilers, those of you who haven't watched or read King Lear, but, you know, at this point, if you haven't seen it, I, I don't know what to tell you. So, during the blinding of Gloucester, uh, this servant sees the machinations of the various other characters being in the scene being Regan, Cornwall, and Edmund, uh, they're all coming to bear in the form of treachery. This is a serious betrayal. Um, so this first servant, yeah, I, I, he identifies the act as wrong, and he responds appropriately. He draws his sword, and he points it squarely at his master in this, in this act of true courageous defiance. He's ready to go, go to blows over this serious wrongdoing. Um, and at that moment when he, when he draws his sword and prepares to, to defend Gloucester, um, at that moment, Regan sneakily and fatally stabs him in the back. Um, he doesn't have, I think he has eight lines in the entire play. And yet Lewis says, if real life were a play, that would be the part it would be best to have acted. Um, the reason for this is that Servant One had no idea how the play was going to end. Uh, regardless of, uh, of the notions of the other characters, about how things were going to play out to their advantage, about how their little plans were going to result in some massive payoff for them. Uh, instead, the servant engages with the present scene, and he does the right thing in accordance with his conscience. You know, he didn't know when his last night on earth was going to be, and as a result, when it came to him suddenly, the moment found him living rightly in the way that best suited him, um, even though we can hardly say it found him at a moment doing the thing he most preferred. Jesus warned his disciples that the day of the coming of the Son of Man, the Perugia, it will come down on all those living on the face of the earth like a trap. So accordingly, the proper way to respond is how we should live according to St. Paul, which is living lives of Christian charity. We should be working to cultivate and perfect our love for one another at all moments in constant prayer and constant thanksgiving. So when the world's last night arrives for us, uh, it finds us exactly as we ought to be, even if we feel entirely unprepared. In the second year of a devastating pandemic, uh, surely we can all appreciate the, the suddenness of 
life's disruptions. Um, so really, the question we have leaving, you know, you know it, after this, this first mass of Advent is what better time than the present to live as we ought. Thanks very much for joining me on this first episode of The Aftermath. Of course, we'll continue next week with readings from the second Sunday of Advent in year C. And until then, all the best to you and yours.